Hello there, murderinos. This is Kate. And this is Matt. Welcome to Horrorwood. Take 25. had some technical issues. We've had a lot of issues. Hopefully this works. We recorded this last night and then it did not export and turns out it didn't get half of the episode. So we're just going to we're just going to rewind. Going to do a little redo. Super cool. Super cool. But you know what? We're going to pretend that this episode is going to be fantastic. It is fantastic. I mean, I'm not sad about uh, talking about this again because uh, it it was such a like I don't want to say iconic but memorable uh, mm-hmm. event in my life and there were you know there's a lot of details I didn't know about this and now like having a little bit more experience and also like you know knowing a little bit more about Saturday Night Live and that culture and some of the, yeah. the people involved um, it. It's a really good episode, so I'm not I'm not sad about doing it again. All right. Well, just to catch everybody up, when we left off in part one, Phil was at a low point in his life. He was newly divorced from his second wife, Lisa. Pee-wee's Big Adventure had just come out, but it didn't give him the career boost he'd hoped it would. And the powers that be at Saturday Night Live had passed him over, opting instead for his buddy and fellow Groundlings member, John Lovitz. I just realized my mail app is open and I need to close that sucker out so it doesn't ding-a-ling. All right. When a producer friend of Phil's invited him to a party he was throwing, Phil was like, that sounds like exactly what I need. I'm going to get out. I'll see people. Have a great time. And it was at this party that he met Bryn Omdahl. Bum, bum, bum. Some reports say they met at the party. Some say it was on a blind date. The party seems more believable to me, mainly because this was shortly after his divorce. This was 1985. Mm-hmm. He'd never been one to have his friends set him up on blind dates. He never had a problem meeting women. I don't know. I just think their meeting was by chance as opposed to arranged by a friend. Yeah, that makes sense. I I buy the party way more than I'd buy a date. Also, I have not seen anyone claim that they introduced Phil to Bryn. (laughs) So there's that. Yeah, also that. Bryn Omdahl was born Vicki Omdahl in Thief River Falls, Minnesota. She was one of four kids. She had a brother and two sisters. According to her brother, Greg, Vicky was a really fun kid, very artistic. She liked to draw, she could play piano, and she had a lot of friends. However, Vicky's high school principal described her as being pretty ordinary. He said she was, quote, just another student. Nothing really stood out about her. Super cool. That principal just sounds like a real stand-up guy, just great at encouraging children, great at helping students reach their full potential. I mean, I don't think he said it to her face, and I don't think he said it to her. <laughs> That's parents. what I'm about. That's what I'm imagining. <laughs> I don't think he was like, Vicky, you're nobody. 
please come down to the office. I have something to tell you. Uh, you're exceedingly average in every uh, regard. Thank you very much. I think this was... I think he was interviewed much after the fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Vicky wasn't the class clown. She wasn't top of her class. She was average. But there is nothing wrong with being average. Nope. However, Vicky didn't like that. She struggled to figure out who she was. She decided to drop out of high school. She felt dropping out of high school was going to help her blossom into becoming above average. She was going to figure out her life. Spoiler alert, doesn't usually work like that. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a bad plan. (laughs) Call me crazy. Shortly after dropping out of school, she met Doug Torfin, a telephone operator, and the two got married. She was 19 at the time. The marriage was short-lived. The two divorced pretty quickly. I think she was probably like, huh, turns out getting married at 19 to a telephone operator does not add spice to my life like I thought it would. (laughs) Sidebar, Doug Torfin is the perfect name for a telephone technician. I love that name. Yeah, it's a great name. We're on a roll here with the names of the Phil Hartman episodes, I will say. Vicky was still trying to figure out who she was and what she wanted. She thought maybe changing her name would help her find that. She went from Vicky to Vicky Joe to Brendan, don't know how she arrived at that one, and then eventually Bryn. A friend of hers said it got to the point where whenever she saw her, she'd ask, who are you this week? Because Bryn was constantly changing her name. First big red flag. I mean, that's, if you can't, if you can't see like, oh, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I want. I'm insecure about my life and who, and you know, what I am like that. That's, that is the clearest signal I think you could send about that. Uh, by changing your name? Yeah, uh, just the confusion about your name and wanting to change your name and finding a new identity. And mm. um, I mean, to me, that that feels like, oh, I I am unhappy with who I am or I don't know who I am. And uh, it, yeah, that just strikes me as something to pay attention to. I don't, that doesn't really stand out to me. I I just think she didn't feel like a Vicky, which... Some people don't feel like their name, so I get that. I'm not sure where the Brendan came think, in, but... Yeah. I think for me, the context is because I work with actors a lot. Whenever I see actors getting bogged down in that whole name thing, it's usually a big red flag that like, oh, mm-hmm. you're actually not serious about acting. You want to be famous. Well, as we'll find out, that is Bryn's goal. She just uh. wants to be famous. Bryn was tall and blonde, and her looks did lead to some modeling work in Minnesota. She got some gigs in Minneapolis, and that was enough to encourage her to make the big move to California to pursue a career in the entertainment industry. She was like, I've conquered the Midwest, Hollywood, here I come. (laughs) She wanted to be an actress and model, and she rolled into L.A. with stars in her eyes. Once in California, though, it became clear pretty quickly that she was no longer the big fish in a small pond. L.A. is full of beautiful people, so she didn't really stand out in the way that she thought she would. She really struggled. She went on some auditions, but they didn't lead anywhere. She wasn't booking anything. However, she did manage to run in the same circles as some very successful people in Hollywood. She actually dated Rob Reiner for a while. Wow, yeah, that that blows me away. That that's uh, a fact I did not know. Yeah, I don't know how they met, uh, but that happened. So she got a taste of what it was like to hang around famous people and their famous friends. 
So here she is, this 20-something young woman from a small town in Minnesota, living what probably felt like a very glamorous life. It wasn't long before she got into the party scene. She was drinking a lot. She was an alcoholic. And this is when she started using cocaine. She did a lot of cocaine. She'd call up her brother Greg and tell him what a great drug it was. And Greg was like, um, you have a problem. You are doing too much cocaine. (laughs) This isn't good. You need help. Yeah. Anytime you're calling someone to talk about how great (laughs) cocaine is, you might have a cocaine problem. Yes. So at her brother's urging, she agreed to enter rehab. Once she left rehab, she was sober for a bit. Acting jobs still weren't happening, but she found work modeling swimwear. And this is where she was in her life when Phil met her. She was sober. She was a model. She was likable. People described her as charismatic. And in typical Phil fashion, he fell hard for her quickly. He felt that as he was this up-and-coming actor in Hollywood, she was the quote-unquote type of woman he was supposed to be with. She was young. She was 10 years his junior. She was tall, blonde, and a model. That's a big age gap. I didn't I didn't know that she was that much younger than him. I I feel like age is like whatever, but at the time she was around 27. He was around 37. Yeah. I might be off by a year or so, but um, you know, she's kind of new into town and figuring things out, and he'd been there for a good while. So I think there was some life experience differences, but Mm -hmm. as far as age, like, uh, whatever, you know. I think it's that city age counts a little bit more, especially Mm. like like what you're saying, like somebody in their young 20s who's fresh off the boat from Minneapolis. Do you take a boat from Minneapolis? I guess you don't, but. You sure uh, don't. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you could, but you would take a long time to get there. But, you know, that's a huge culture change. And like you're saying, like he'd been there for a long time and. I mean, that is a big power differential for sure. Yes. Frankie's scratching Uh at the door. I hear some Frankie. I hear a little Frankie. (laughs) The fact that she had previously dated Rob Reiner was like a bonus to Phil. It sort of upped her status in his eyes. Uh, Plus, he was on the rebound. So when he met her, she seemed like his ideal woman. He hadn't spoken to Lisa, his previous wife, since they split up. But he calls her up one day and says, hey, I met someone. And he told her that he'd been really down since their divorce, even though, remember, he was the one who pushed her away. He told her she was getting in the way of his career and that she was a black hole, all that. But he says he's been really down, but he's met this incredible woman and she makes him feel really good. She's so great, yada, yada, yada. Lisa, being the amazing human she is, was supportive. And she and Phil stayed close friends, which isn't often the case with divorced couples. You don't hear that that often. Exceedingly rare, especially in those circumstances where he was the one to end it and push her away. Yeah. They didn't have kids together, so it wasn't like there was anything tying them to each other. And as far as I know, he didn't really stay friends with his first wife, Gretchen. So I think it just goes to show that Phil and Lisa had a powerful connection. And I do think she was the one that got away. That's my Mm -hmm. opinion. Yeah. Phil and Bryn were hot and heavy in the beginning. According to friends, Phil suggested to Bryn 
that if she stuck with him, he was going to help her career. He liked that she was this tall, blonde beauty. She liked that he was this successful guy on his way up. But once the newness of the relationship wore off, it wasn't long before the cracks in the relationship began to show. The couple fought constantly. They ran hot and cold. Ed Begley Jr., who I mentioned in part one, by now he and Phil were good friends. Ed and his then-wife lived in Ojai, California, and invited Phil and Bryn up to their place one weekend. It was just going to be a relaxing, fun time. Ojai is very picturesque, very romantic. They were just going to have a good weekend together. Mm -hmm. So Phil and Bryn planned to go, but they never showed up. The next day, Phil calls Ed to apologize, and he says, Ed, I'm so sorry. I don't do that. When I make an appointment, I keep it. I feel terrible, but Bryn and I got in a big fight, and we've split up. It's over. About a month or two later, Ed runs into Phil at an event, and Phil was there with Bryn, and they were super lovey-dovey with each other, like there'd never been anything wrong. Which, I mean, couples fight, and they sometimes break up and then get back together, but for Phil and Bryn, this became a pattern. They'd fight, they'd break up. They kiss, they make up Katy Perry. I mean, I know couples that have a hot and cold kind of thing, but not that extreme, not like breaking up and then getting back together. I mean, yeah, that seems extreme. After about a year of being on again, off again, the relationship was off. Meanwhile, Pee Wee Herman had been picked up as a television series and was shooting in New York. So Phil was going to reprise his role of Captain Carl. So he packs up and moves to the East Coast to be on the show. However, he only appeared in the first season because he and Paul Rubens ended up having a falling out over a creative credit dispute. Phil told Howard Stern that all the people that had contributed to the stage version of the Pee Wee show at the Groundlings had a contract that they would each receive 3% of whatever happened with the show. So should that stage show go on to be a movie, everyone that helped create it gets 3% of the earnings. Should it go on to be a TV show, same deal. Everyone involved gets 3% of the earnings. Once the show became a series at CBS, that contract was not honored. So all the people that helped Paul Rubens create this iconic character were screwed over. And we were talking about this. Yeah, I know this. I, I didn't know that, uh, but that makes total sense that, you know, all the people involved had a deal together that if this takes off, um, you know, we all get a little piece. Mm-hmm. Like once a network gets involved, all bets are off. You know, any any right. previous deals you had are, do not matter to a network. So, so that's the thing. Yeah. It's hard to know if Paul Rubens even knew that people were getting screwed over yes. or or how much power he had. It does not sound, though, that he even tried to fight for them. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's tough because um, we don't yeah. know all the ins and outs of that. I read that the two eventually did get back into communication years later, but they never worked together again. And I don't think that their friendship really repaired. Yeah, that's that's too bad. Um, I think it's easy to demonize Paul here, but I don't mm-hmm. know that you 
really can fully do that without knowing more of the dynamics of what were happening. And, and exactly. it's, it's tough. Like if you're in, if you're in the position of Phil or one of the groundlings to see your friend taking off and being excited for him, but knowing you were part of that and not getting to come mm -hmm. along for the ride, that's really hard. Yeah, that's, that's a tough blow. Around the same time that Phil was in New York for the Pee Wee show, John Lovitz was doing Saturday Night Live. John Lovitz told the folks at SNL, if you think I'm funny, you've got to get Phil Hartman. That guy is a genius. So thanks to the encouragement from Lovitz, SNL finally offered Phil an audition. They told him to prepare five minutes of material. So he did the characters he had done at the Groundlings, like Chick Hazard. Uh -huh. But he said the thing he did that seemed to be the moment everyone in the room perked up is he said, I can do any dialect. Go ahead. Give me a dialect. And Dennis Miller calls out, do French. And Phil <laughs> takes a beat and goes, I don't do that. In the entire <laughs> room, he had them in the palm of his hand. So they were kind of like, okay, we get it. We get you. We get what you do here. So on October 11th, 1986, at age 38, Phil made his SNL debut. And everyone from the Groundlings got together in L.A. and watched the show together, which is very cute. Yeah. Tracy Newman, I mentioned her in part one. She was one of the original members of the Groundlings. And she was the one that when Lorne Michaels came to see a show there, she said, oh, what do you mean you're not here for Phil? She ran into Lorne at a party a couple of years after Phil had joined the SNL cast. And she asked him, so what's it like to have Phil on the show, finally? And he <laughs> said, Tracy, I don't even have to go into work. Because Phil became the go-to guy. He was the glue. That was his nickname because he had an ability to hold sketches together to keep the believability within the scene he was the nucleus of the group. He got along with everyone. Yeah. I mean, any comedy person will tell you that the hardest role between the foil and the funny man is the foil. Being the, being the glue, being exactly. uh, the foil is, is the hardest. And yeah, I mean, he's easily a top five SNL performer of all time. Oh, yeah. And when you are that foil, it often means you're not the one getting the big laughs. He became more of a straight man to other cast members like Chris Farley once he joined the show. Phil was a stabilizing force, and that was a role he really learned to relish. The following year in 1987, Bryn and Phil rekindle their romance, and Bryn moves to New York to be with him. I thought this was really interesting. I couldn't find who instigated this rekindling, if you will. Uh -huh. But I just thought it was interesting that suddenly Phil, you know, he's on a season of Pee Wee. Now he's on SNL and him and Bryn are back together. And she's like, yeah, I'll move to New York with you. It just felt a little interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a little bit more in the public eye and suddenly maybe I should get back with Phil. <laughs> and I mean, it could have been him who was like, hey, yeah, I think I want to try that know. again. We don't know. We don't know. Yeah. So now Bryn is showing up at SNL regularly. Cast member Julia Sweeney said Bryn would walk into the studio wearing bright red clothes to stand out and short skirts to show off her legs with no intention of hiding in the background. Like she wanted to be noticed mm -hmm. there. Phil was a writer on the show, so Bryn would hang out in the writer's room and boldly flirt with the other guys in the room 
She'd sit on their laps. She'd play with their hair, play with their ears, all while Phil is sitting right there. But he never seemed bothered by it. He would just say, how does a chubby guy like me have somebody like her on my arm? It was very much he liked the way she looked. Uh He felt that she made him look better. Some odd dynamics going on. Yeah, it feels like very much a surfaces kind of uh, relationship. Bryn tried every trick she had to try to get on the show. She wanted the fame and fortune that Phil was starting to get. So when they filmed the opening credits for the upcoming season, where the announcer says the cast names, the one for Phil is him sitting in a restaurant booth and you see the back of a blonde woman's head sitting across from him. So that's Bryn. But every time they went to shoot that footage, Bryn kept turning her head to try to be seen on camera. And the director would have to say, cut, Bryn, don't turn your head. And they'd go again. And once again, she'd turn her head and try to look towards camera. And once again, the director would yell, cut, Bryn, don't move. Just look at Phil. (laughs) So in the intro that made it to TV, you see Phil, who turns to the camera and smiles when his name is announced, and you see the back of Bryn's head. But she's wearing these long, dangling earrings. And even though she isn't moving in the shot, her earring is swinging back and forth because she had kept turning her head. Oh, wow. That behavior is out of line. That's crazy. She told her friend, quote, I kept trying to get my face on camera, but the damn director kept telling me to turn away. I was so frustrated. It's like, honey, that's not your gig. Yeah. Shortly after they got back together, Phil announces he and Bryn are engaged. Everyone in their inner circle was shocked given how on again, off again the relationship had been. Cassandra Peterson, who you might know better as Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Oh, damn. Was a longtime friend of Phil's. They had been at the Groundlings together. They were really close. Cassandra said that she saw a lot of red flags in Bryn and Phil's relationship right from the start. She could see that Bryn was, quote, a very troubled person with a lot of problems. And she knew the couple fought a lot. So when he told Cassandra he was marrying Bryn, Cassandra blurted out, oh, God, no. And she tried to talk him out of it. She just had a feeling it would turn out bad. This pissed Phil off. Cassandra said it was the first time she'd ever seen him angry. He told her to leave his office and the two didn't speak again for years. Phil and Bryn wed on November 25th, 1987, in a very small ceremony in New York. No family was present, which I also thought was odd. Yeah, that's weird. That's weird. Because they'd both been married before, they said they just wanted a really small ceremony. But at the same time, I feel like you want, yeah. you know, someone that's yeah. part family there. I don't know. Unless you're eloping. I don't know. Yeah. Weird. The following June... Their first child was born, a son they named Sean. If you consider the timeline, she was pregnant before they wed. I don't know if that influenced Phil's decision to marry her or Uh, if they were already planning to get married, but it's interesting. Yeah. When Sean was born, Phil calls up Lisa, his previous wife, to tell her the news. So Lisa sent a card congratulating the new parents, saying, I'm so happy for you guys. If you ever need a babysitter, I'm here. I'm so thrilled for you both. And she signed it, much love, Aunt Lisa. What she got back in response 
was a death threat from Bryn. Whoa. Bryn told Lisa to stay the fuck out of their lives and never contact them again. She told her if she ever came near her or Phil, she would really be sorry. And if she contacted Phil again, she would rip her eyes out. What? The letter was two pages front and back handwritten. Lisa was in shock and she was terrified. So she calls Phil and she's like, do you have any idea what your wife wrote me? And he said, oh, you should have seen what she wanted to send you. And Lisa's like, um, you knew about this and you just let her write that to me. And he answered, well, I can't stop her from doing what she wants to do. She's very intense. Oh, my gosh. Also, wrong answer, Phil. (laughs) Yeah, it's not great. Lisa was upset that Phil had known about the letter and didn't stop Ren, so she didn't talk to him for two years after that. I love this lady. I mean, she is putting up clear boundaries when when shit is like going sideways. It's like, you know what? I don't need to talk to you for a while. Total respect for that. Lisa is awesome. She's an amazing human. After the birth of Sean, Phil and Bryn purchased a home in Encino, California, which is part of L.A., and they split their time between L.A. and New York. Phil absolutely loved being a dad, and Bryn became a full-time stay-at-home mom. While Bryn is home with Sean, Phil's career continued to grow. In 1989, he won an Emmy for writing on Saturday Night Live, and the following year, he's cast as one of the voices on The Simpsons. He was attorney Lionel Hutz. Oh, yeah. That old chestnut. Forgot he was on The Simpsons. (laughs) Kind of a big show. Then they wrote a second character, Troy McClure, with Phil in mind. Troy McClure is the B-movie actor turned pitchman on The Simpsons who says things like, you might remember me from such films as Here Comes the Coast Guard, (laughs) things like that. That's an actual line of his. So he's on two hit shows, SNL and The Simpsons, and he's on top of the world. How does it get better than that? But the more successful he became, the more jealous Bryn was because she wanted that success. She wanted the fame and the glory. And she did not like just being known as Mrs. Phil Hartman. Mm. She was incredibly insecure. That's one thing her friends mention in interviews over and over is that she was really insecure. She underwent several cosmetic surgeries and even the plastic surgeon that operated on her said she was insecure. Oh, that's not good. According to a nanny the couple had in New York City, some of the surgeries were Phil's idea. The nanny said, quote, He thought her face was too round and wanted her chin to be more square. Oh, my Lord. I don't know if there's validity to that. Yeah. That could just be hearsay. But regardless, this is not a happy couple. It's not a healthy relationship. No. In February of 1992, the Hartmans welcomed their second child, a daughter they named Bergen. Phil was over the moon. He was so proud of his kids, so proud to be a father. Both Phil and Bryn were 110% devoted to those kids. Career-wise, Phil was still looking for that star-making role. Because even though he was successful, he had memorable characters under his belt, like the unfrozen caveman lawyer. Do you remember that one? Oh. He was like, your world frightens and confuses me. Be still my heart. <laughs> I love that character. He had the Simpsons. So he has, you know, 
some big things going on, but he hadn't yet found that breakout, that one uh-huh. character that could really put him on the map. And then Bill Clinton won the election. Oh, yeah. Phil's portrayal of Bill Clinton put him in the spotlight like never before. Talk show hosts even asked to interview him as Bill Clinton. And he was able to make a little money on the side by playing Clinton outside of SNL. He was such a good impressionist. Uh, I mean, that 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 sketch of Bill Clinton and McDonald's, uh, that, that really was the sketch that I think was the most iconic uh, That's considered probably his most famous sketch, yeah. yeah. Which, if you don't know what that sketch is, look it up online because it's pretty fantastic. When Phil started playing Clinton, that's when everyone really took notice of him and his talent. He was considered a full-fledged star at that point. Of course, the better Phil does in his career, the more upset Bren gets that she isn't the star. She would pick fights with him constantly. She had a pattern of showing up at SNL right before the dress rehearsal and starting an argument. That is next level manipulation. Because she could have just waited till he got home. But no, she would go to his place of work right before their final rehearsal before a show just to rattle him. And she would do this all while dressed to the nines. She'd wear a short cocktail dress and high heels just pulling out all of her tricks to try to get attention. And the others at the show saw it. They'd hear them arguing in his dressing room or see them fighting in the hall. It wasn't good. Part of the issue was that Bryn was back to abusing drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. She was doing a lot of cocaine. She would do cocaine at SNL. Donna Kaufman, a former writer on the show, said she walked into the restroom once and Bryn was in there snorting coke. And Bryn offered her some. But Donna said she didn't think too much about it and was unaware that Bryn had a drug problem. She was like, it was SNL. Coke wasn't that uncommon then. On one particular night at SNL, Bryn pulled her usual showing up to fight bit. And afterwards, Phil went to hair and makeup because he had to get ready for the show. And his Mm -hmm. makeup artist, Norman, said Phil was trembling, just visibly shaking. And Norman said, what's wrong? And Phil, in a character cartoon-like voice, said, Well, Norm, looks like the wife's going to divorce me this time. But then he gets serious. And he says, Well, she's just upset that I'm away from home a lot. She doesn't have a career, and she'd like me to be around more, but I'm the breadwinner. Plus, Phil loved what he was doing. It was important to him, so he had no intention of slowing down. The fights continued at home. Phil told his friend Wink Roberts, quote, I have to pretend to be asleep, otherwise she won't stop. We talked about in part one how whenever he and his previous wife, Lisa, would fight, he would go to sleep. Uh-huh. And she said she could not rouse him. It was like he'd just go unconscious. I think a lot of those times he was just pretending that was his way out. Yeah, that makes sense. Wink tells him, Man, I'm so sorry. That's awful. Everything seems picture perfect on the outside. And Phil said, you have no idea. Sidebar, Wink Roberts also sounds like the name of a Phil Hartman character. (laughs) It does. (laughs) One of Phil's ways of escaping the troubles at home was to go to his beloved Catalina Island. Once he started making money, he bought himself a lot of big toys. Cars, boats, a plane... He loved the mechanics of these items, learning how they were built, how they come apart, how to fix them. 
So he would sail his own boat out to Catalina, sometimes with a group of guy friends, but a lot of times he'd just go by himself. It was his place to relax and to reset. He did invite Bryn once, but the weather was really bad. So they were out on the boat and it's windy. The boat is rocking back and forth and Bryn got sick. According to Phil's friend, he thinks Phil took her out in bad weather intentionally so that she would not like it and wouldn't want to go back. Oh, interesting. Man, there seems to be a lot of manipulation on both sides of this relationship. Both sides. There is. Absolutely. Phil's friend, Britt Marin, Britt is male, just FYI, often accompanied Phil to Catalina. And he was told later by a friend that Bryn had hired a private investigator to follow them for years. Whoa. There were thousands of pictures of them on the boat, hanging out, smoking pot, because Bryn thought Phil was cheating on her, but he wasn't. Phil never had women on the boat. That was a strict rule of his. He was very faithful. Wow, she sounds very paranoid. So insecure. It's never a good sign of a relationship if you have to hire a PI (laughs) to follow the other person. Yeah. Like that's maybe when you want to take a step back and reevaluate things. Yeah. When you actually have no proof either. It's just, yeah. Let's find a detective. (laughs) Let's find Chick Hazard, (laughs) private eye. Phil learned how to fly planes. He bought a plane and would fly his friends around. Tracy Newman from the Groundlings says she went up in the plane with him and she wasn't scared because he wasn't flying as Phil. He was flying in character. He was playing a guy who knew how to fly planes. So she said she (laughs) felt really safe. Oh, man. Actor pilots make me super nervous. I don't know that I would trust actor turned pilot. She did say, though, that he was a very good pilot. And I think because he was such a perfectionist and did find such fascination with mechanics and machines that he was probably like mm-hmm. a better pilot than some of the pros out there. You know, like to, hearing you say that makes me also, you know, it gives you some insight. I think he, I mean, he was such a technician, especially with impressions. You can see how he would Absolutely. take apart, uh, you know, the, the celebrity that he was impersonating and really find the small ticks, the small things that he could emulate to make that impression work. Uh, so it, that that correlates, I think, pretty directly. Yeah. Details. Very detailed-oriented. Details. 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 Over at SNL, changes were taking place within the cast. The group he had sort of grown up with there, John Lovitz, Jan Hooks, Dana Carvey, like that whole class, they were moving on. Their time at SNL was winding down. And a new group was moving in. Like Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, guys a lot younger than Phil. At this point, we're in 1993 now, so he was in his 40s. And these younger guys have these huge characters. They do a lot of physical comedy that Phil just didn't do. And he wasn't the one getting the laughs. He was vital to the scenes, Mm -hmm. but he felt his time there was done. And he announced that the upcoming season would be his last. That same year, he got roles in a few movies, So I Married an Axe Murderer, Coneheads, Greedy, which he worked on with his good friend Ed Begley Jr. And Ed could tell that Phil was going through some stuff. He knew things were rough at home. So Ed talked to him about it one day on set. 
And Phil asked Ed, hey, do you still have that spare room above the garage? And Ed said, yeah, do you need a place? And Phil said, yes, I need to move out quickly. So Ed said, of course, you can come by tonight. I'll give you the key. Just as had happened years before, Ed was waiting for Phil to arrive, but he never showed and didn't call. Mm. So when he saw him on set next, he's like, Phil, what happened? And Phil said, oh, everything's fine. Oh, sorry, I forgot I even asked you about that. Like nothing had happened. It was such a tumultuous relationship that ran hot and cold. Bryn would pester him to help her with her career. She wanted him to use his star power to get her roles. So whenever there'd be like a red carpet event or something, Phil would uh-huh. always be sure to introduce her to the press. He'd say, this is Bryn, my wife Bryn, B-R-Y-N-N, to make sure that they got her name. He did an interview in 1993 with Howard Stern in which he brought Bryn to the show, which was a little unusual. So she comes out for about a minute of the interview And Phil talks her up about how she was a runway model for swimwear, how she's more beautiful than his previous two wives. And Howard asks her if she's ever met those two wives. And she says, "Uh, I talked to Gretchen on the phone. I had no desire to meet the other one. The other one being Lisa. Yeah. Bryn was so jealous of Lisa. Bryn was very insecure, and insecurity breeds jealousy. Lisa and Phil had reestablished their friendship, and she became someone he would confide in. But they had to meet in secret because he said if Bryn ever found out, that was it. So he literally sneak into her apartment in disguise just to have lunch. Well, now the private detective thing doesn't sound so out of uh, <laughs> out of the blue. If he's doing True. that stuff. Yeah. And also, I mean, I'm a big fan of Lisa in this story, but if you know about these problems and the guy is sneaking over to mm-hmm. your place in disguise, there's some there's some stuff there too that maybe you go, yeah. you know what, maybe I should step back. Yeah. But he would tell her about all the troubles at home and she'd ask, have you been to therapy? And he'd say, oh, yeah, we've done tons of therapy. We're always going to therapy. And he told Lisa, I'm willing to do what it takes to save my marriage because I can't be a three-time loser. And we have children. So it sounds like he wasn't madly in love with this woman, but he just didn't want it to end. He was staying with her for the kids. He didn't want to fail at this. So... There's a lot going on there. Upon Phil's exit from SNL, he began working on his own show called The Phil Show, which was meant to be a vehicle for him to play a bunch of different characters and basically do what he does best. Bryn kept pestering him to get her a role on his new show, and she wouldn't drop it. So he went to the writers and proposed offering her a role, which was super awkward. Yeah. The writers wanted Jan Hooks because Phil and Jan had worked so well together in the past on SNL. But Phil shot that idea down. He said, nope, Bryn would be perfect. And the writers asked, well, is she funny? And Phil said, in her own way. Ooh, red flag. Yeah, that that means no. (laughs) But the writers could tell this was 
just him trying to appease her, as opposed to him thinking she was actually good for the part. Phil was also developing a sitcom with a very prominent role for Bren. Donna Kaufman, the SNL writer I mentioned earlier, was involved in that project and had meetings with each of them. They loved what she was writing, and on the surface, all seemed well and jovial. However, the Phil show got scrapped before it even began because the network didn't go for it. Mm. And around this same time, Phil was offered the role on news radio of Bill McNeil. They had written that role with him in mind. So he decided to scrap the sitcom he'd been working on that Bryn was supposed to have a big role in. So Bryn goes and tells a friend, well, he just dropped that project because he doesn't want to work with me. Oh, of course, that's the conclusion. Yeah. Yeah, because because it's all about you, Bryn. Always. Phil did help secure Bryn a tiny role in the movie North, directed by her ex, Rob Reiner. She has two lines. She also did a bit part in Third Rock from the Sun a couple years later. And that's about the extent of her acting career. Okay. Phil continued to be absent from home a lot. He was busy with movies and with news radio, and this would piss Bryn off. She became physically violent with him to the point that Phil would have to restrain her. He'd walk into set with scratch marks on his face, or he'd casually mention, oh yeah, I slept on the boat last night. A lot of red flags. Bren's substance abuse was only making matters worse, and they would fight about it a lot. He called his mom up one day in 1997 and said, I cannot be with someone who abuses drugs and alcohol. If you remember from part one, his dad, Rupert, was an alcoholic. Doris, his mom, gave Rupert an ultimatum once the kids were grown and out of the house. She told him, our kids are grown. There's no reason for us to be together anymore. I don't want to be with you if you're going to continue to drink. If you stop drinking, then great, let's be together. Well, Rupert gave up alcohol right then and there, and they stayed together. Mm. Phil hoped Bryn would stop as well. She was in and out of rehab, and when she was sober, things were pretty peaceful at home. But when she was drinking or doing cocaine, things got bad. At a Christmas party at Phil and Bryn's home in 1997, Andy Dick, Phil's co-star from News Radio, was there. Andy was a partier. He was known to do drugs. He never hid this. Bryn and her friend went up to Andy at the party and asked if he had any coke. And he was like, yeah, I do. And they said, can we have some? And he said, sure. Andy said he did not know Bryn had a problem with cocaine. He said he was unaware that she was in relapse mode. Bryn then got a prescription for Zoloft from her son's doctor. Not sure why the pediatrician is prescribing that to the parent. But yeah, that's weird. I wasn't there, so I don't know. <laughs> Zoloft is an anti-anxiety, antidepressant. It's very common, but back then it was fairly new. It came onto the scene in the early 90s. Phil confides in Lisa that Bryn is getting more violent. She throws things, she slaps him, she scratches him. And Lisa asks, kind of half-jokingly, but kind of serious, she says, she doesn't have a gun, does she? Because Phil kept several guns when the two of them were together. Mm -hmm. He said, oh, yeah, she has a gun. She has one for protection. And Lisa's like, protection from what? Ooh. There were so many red flags. And even though a lot of people were aware of the troubles between the two, No one could have guessed how it would all end. 
In early May of 1998, the Hartman's housekeeper quit because Bryn's behavior was so erratic when she was using drugs. Around May 24th, Phil went to see his friend Wink Roberts, and Phil was really down. He told Wink that Bryn had been in rehab several times and she was scheduled to go back the following week. Phil said, you know, I just really love her and I want it to all be okay. A couple of days later, Phil's friend Steve Small asked him how things were going. And Phil answered, great, really great. Things are quiet. She's listening to me. Things are really good. On May 27th, 1998, Phil went with his buddy Britt Marin down to Newport Beach to check on his car collection. Britt made plans to go out with her friend, leaving the kids with the nanny, Lorraine. Bryn left around 7 or 7.30 p.m. that night, and Lorraine waited at the house for Phil to arrive home. Lorraine said there was nothing abnormal about Bryn that day. It was a very normal day. Phil got home and relieved Lorraine, so she left. That evening, Phil called up Brian Mulhern, who had been one of the writers on The Phil Show. Mm -hmm. And Brian was a little frustrated with his own career. He starts telling Phil that he doesn't feel like things are happening fast enough for him. And Phil told him, quote, you know what? You're a talented guy. It's all going to work out. What you need to focus on is what's most important. Your family, your friends, the people closest to you. Look at me. I'm 49. And now, finally, I have everything that I want. Ooh. Ooh. Those are, those are telling last words. While Phil was home with the kids, Bryn was with her friend at Buca de Beppo. At the time, Buca de Beppo was relatively new. It had just recently expanded to Los Angeles. The restaurant was also just a thousand feet from the Hartman's home. And Phil and Bren would go there on occasion. They actually celebrated her 40th birthday there the month prior. Mm. So she's at the restaurant with her friend Christine Zander, who was a writer and producer on Third Rock from the Sun. The two women order drinks. Bren has two cosmopolitans. The conversation quickly turns to Bryn's relationship with Phil. Bryn expresses that she's really unhappy. She doesn't feel valued at home. She says that Phil just wants her taking care of the kids and he doesn't care about her career. Mind you, she's not actually doing anything to pursue a career on her own. <laughs> yeah. She's just expecting Phil to make it happen for her. Christine gets up to use the restroom a couple of times at the restaurant. And each time she came out, Bryn was on the payphone, looking very agitated. We don't know who she was talking to, so not sure what that was about. Uh -huh. As the evening went on, Christine was ready to go home, but Bryn didn't want to. She wanted to stay and keep the evening going. But Christine was like, nah, I'm going to peace out. So as the two parted ways, they made plans to get together again the following weekend. Bryn, rather than go home... Instead, drives to her friend Ron Douglas's house. The two of them had dated previously, but now they were just friends. She arrives at Ron's around 10.15 p.m. While there, she has a few beers. Ron said she clearly was looking for some attention. She starts complaining to Ron about Phil, and she clearly did not want to go home. Ron said he could tell she was hopped up. I took that to mean he could tell she had done coke, yeah. but I could be wrong about that. Yeah. Maybe those calls were to procure some some party favors. Possibly. She could have also been calling Phil to check on the kids. I don't yeah. know. Uh, she did eventually leave Ron's at 1245 a.m. 
She drove herself back home. This is after several drinks. And when she got home, the kids were in bed, obviously, because it's super late. Mm -hmm. It's believed Bryn and Phil had some sort of argument. And the reason is because nine-year-old Sean later said that he heard a door slam and his mom say, sorry, 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 sorry. Phil did what he always did during arguments. He went to sleep or at least pretended to sleep. It's unclear if Bryn took more drugs next, if she had more to drink, we don't know. But she eventually went into their bathroom and opened the lockbox they kept in there. She pulled out a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson and walked back into the bedroom. Phil was lying on the right side of the bed, on his left side, so facing her side of the bed. He was wearing a purple t-shirt and red and white boxer shorts that had cartoon dachshunds printed on them. And I don't know why, but when I read that, I was just like, that hit me for some reason. Oh, yeah, those, those details are too much. Bryn walked to her side of the bed facing Phil. And whether he was asleep or just pretending to be, we don't know. She pointed the gun at him and fired three shots. One went through the back of his right forearm. He had his right arm folded in front of him because he's on his left side. So that bullet went through the back of his forearm, exited, and re-entered into the lower right part of his chest slash upper abdomen, then deflected downward to his liver. Another shot went through the right side of his neck, traveling to his left shoulder. Amazingly, it missed the carotid artery, and this particular shot was a non-fatal wound. Another shot was in the center of his forehead, just above the bridge of his nose. She held the gun directly to his skin when she fired this shot. Oh my God. According to the autopsy report, Phil's estimated time of death is 2.30 a.m. According to the police report, Bryn went back to Ron's house between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. In one documentary I watched, it gave the time as 3.45 a.m. So shortly after she has shot Phil, she leaves the house. She was wearing her pajamas, socks, but no shoes. So she drove from her house to Ron's with no shoes on. Tells you about the frame of mind. Yeah. She gets to Ron's. She starts pounding on the door. And Ron was asleep. So he gets up. He's groggy. He's like, what are you doing back here? He was annoyed because it was the middle of the night. She walks in and says, don't yell at me. Phil yells at me all the time. And then she tells Ron, I killed Phil. I don't know why. Ron doesn't believe her. He's like, no, that didn't happen. Like, you were just here earlier. What are you talking about? So he kind of just blows it off. Like, oh, Bryn's just drunk. Then she starts going through her purse like she's looking for something, and the gun falls out. And Ron's like, what the fuck? So he grabs the gun and puts it in a shopping bag. And now he's starting to think, maybe this is serious, but I still don't think he believed her at that point. Mm -hmm. If he had, I think he'd been like, we're calling 911, but yeah. that's not what happened. He let her stay there for a couple of hours while she sobered up. Around 5.45 a.m., Ron puts the bag with the gun in it in the trunk of his car, and he says, let's get you back home. I'll follow you there. So they drive back to the Hartmans separately, and Bren brings him inside 
and leads him back to the main bedroom. And Ron walks in to see Phil, who at this point has been dead for a few hours. There was blood trailing from each gunshot wound. The sheets and pillowcase were soaked with blood. And Bryn says, see, I told you, I killed Phil. I killed Phil. I can't even imagine what a sight that must have been for Ron to walk into. So Ron immediately goes out to the hallway where there's a phone and calls 911. While he's doing that, Bryn closes herself inside the bedroom and locks the door. While in there, she retrieves a second gun. Mm. Minutes later, police arrive and they try to get Bryn to come out of the bedroom, but she refuses. Instead, she calls a family friend, a couple that she knew. The husband answers and speaks with Bryn a minute, then goes to his wife and his wife's like, are you okay? And he says, that was Bryn. She thinks Phil is dead. She needs you. So they immediately head over to the Hartman's house. And when they got there, they could hear Bryn screaming from inside. Bryn then calls her sister, Kathy, from the bedroom. And when Kathy answers, Bryn is crying. And she says, my life is over. I killed Phil. Tell the kids I love them. Will you take care of them? Oh, my God. And Kathy tries talking with her. But Bryn cuts her off and says, I got to go and hangs up. Ron grabbed Sean, their nine-year-old son, and took him out to one of the officers. Because that's the thing. The kids are still present when all of this is going down. Oh, that's so messed up. Ron tells the officer that Bergen, the daughter, is still inside the house. So the officer searches the home and finds six-year-old Bergen crouched in the corner of her bedroom with a blanket over her head, absolutely terrified. As the officer was in the home actively taking Bergen out, a shot fired. LAPD surrounded the house, and they were planning to break the windows to the bedroom to divert Bryn. They called out to her to surrender, and when she didn't, they broke into the bedroom. There they found not just Phil's body, but also Bryn's. She was lying face up next to her husband. She had put the gun in her mouth and pulled the trigger. The gun was still in her right hand. As word got out... Family friends started coming to the house. Joel Diamond, a friend of theirs, went to the police station where Bergen and Sean were being held. And he said, can I please take these kids out of here? Because the station was chaos. Like, there's so much going on. And the officers were like, yeah, there's a park across the street. So he takes them to the park, gets the McDonald's, asks if, if there's anything he can do for them. And Sean just said, no. My mom promised me she was going to take me to a lot of fun places, and now she'll never be able to. And Bergen said, I'll never see my mom and daddy again. Even though she didn't know exactly what happened, she knew that much. A lot of people closest to them heard about the deaths from the news. Phil's sister Mary was one of them. LAPD hadn't even had a chance to contact the family yet. I remember hearing on the news as I I was at work, I'd just gotten to work and I'm like prepping for the day and I heard it on the radio and then they spent the rest of the hour talking about it. And it was just, I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. Wink Roberts also learned about it from the news and didn't believe it. He thought it was probably some kind of publicity stunt at first. 
Phil's friends were stunned. John Lovitz took it especially hard. He had known Phil for decades. They were great friends. John invited everyone over to his house when they heard the news, and they all told stories about Phil and cried together. And John also hosted the memorial for Phil. John needed someone to blame because Bryn was gone, so he couldn't blame her. So Andy Dick became the subject of John's anger that he was feeling. Hmm. One day, Vicki Lewis and Andy Dick were driving out of the parking lot, leaving news radio. Vicki was giving Andy a ride home, and John Lovitz flagged them down. So they stop, and John went around to the passenger side where Andy was sitting and leaned in and whispered in his ear, I know you killed Phil Hartman. And Andy was blindsided. He was like, what? Yeah, what? And John said, you gave Bryn cocaine at that party and it made her go crazy and that's why she shot Phil. And Andy fought back and was like, no, I didn't cause her to relapse. She already had, unbeknownst to him. And he said, it's not like I gave her coke and she went out later that night and shot Phil. It happened six months after the fact. Yeah. So there was a lot of anger and blame going around. According to Bryn's toxicology report, she had a blood alcohol level of 0.12, and there was also Zoloft and cocaine in her system. Greg Omdahl, Bryn's brother, sued Pfizer, the maker of Zoloft, the following year. He alleged that the drug caused her to not be in her right mind, and so she shot her husband, and when she came to and realized what she had done, she shot herself. Uh, that seems a little thin as an argument, especially when you have cocaine and alcohol also in your system. Yeah, it's, I mean, again, they didn't know a lot about Zoloft at the time, but Bryn had supposedly complained about the Zoloft in the past, saying Mm. it made her want to, quote, jump out of her skin, to which I say, then why take it? But that's just me. And in combo with, with the other things she was abusing, not a good plan. Right. Her doctor told her to cut the dosage by half. It's unclear if she did that. According to her brother, it was the Zoloft, not the cocaine or alcohol, that led to her actions that night. I think he was grieving and he wanted someone to blame. And so Pfizer became the the company he blamed. At the time the lawsuit was filed, Pfizer stated, quote, There was no medical or scientific evidence that Zoloft caused a violent or suicidal behavior. Pfizer settled the case for $100,000 and there was no admission of any wrongdoing. However, according to Phil's brother John, the coroner told him directly, when the alcohol hit the Zoloft, it exploded in her brain and she had no idea what she was doing or why she did it. Mm. When John heard that, He said he forgave her right there and then. He said she wasn't in her right mind. If she had been, this wouldn't have happened. And he forgave her. Side note, Phil's dad passed away just weeks before Phil. So this poor family was going through it. Oh, my God. News radio began its next season with the death of Phil's character, Bill McNeil. And he was replaced by John Lovitz. But that would be the last season for the show. Because without Phil, it just, there was no show. The Simpsons retired all of Phil's characters after his passing. The producer said it just felt wrong to have any other actor's voice come out of those characters. In September of 1998, just a few months after the murder, it would have been Phil's 50th birthday. 
family and friends sailed out to Catalina to spread his ashes. It was a tough day. It was overcast. They sat on the boat all day. They played music Phil liked. They shared stories. And then they threw his ashes out into the water. And Phyllis Katz, a friend of his from the Groundlings, said that as the boat pulled away to go back, the sun came out. She said, I don't want to put any meaning on it other than it felt comforting. Mm. In 2014, Phil was honored posthumously with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. As for Sean and Bergen, both are doing well. They were raised by Bren's sister in the Midwest. Bergen is married and started a business. Sean is an artist and a musician, and both have chosen to stay out of the spotlight. That's good to hear. The thing that Phil's friends and colleagues have said about him over and over was he was the ultimate professional. He was genuine, and he was everybody's big brother. Mike Scully, former executive producer of The Simpsons, said, quote, Phil was just tremendous fun to work with. The minute he said hello, you were laughing. <laughs> he had no ego, was very low maintenance, and was just an honest, good, down-to-earth person. Which is kind of funny because the characters he played are all jerks and idiots. <laughs> he used to joke <laughs> about that. He'd say, what is it about me that makes me so good at playing idiots? But that is the story of Phil Hartman. Oh, tragic. Tragic. Horrible. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, it was very intriguing to hear all of those details and a lot of things that I didn't know about uh, that relationship and how that happened. But uh, Yeah, and what's cool is that, you know, you can find his stuff online. You can see his SNL audition. You can watch the Howard Stern mm -hmm. interview. You can, you can watch clips of Saturday Night Live with him. So he does live on in a way. And Lisa, uh, I didn't actually put this in my notes, but I'm going to add it anyway. Lisa said that she thinks about him all the time and that the two of them both believed that even after you die, energy lives on. Mm -hmm. And so she does say that she she still feels his energy. She said, you know, that mm -hmm. he's still here and that that was something that was a shared belief between the two of them that it never, energy doesn't really go away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's some comfort. But um yeah, man, a tough a tough end to a brilliant life. He was so, so good at what he did. And uh, Matt, you're good at what you do, which is supporting me when the technology <laughs> fails. Man, that was a it was a rough evening. It was a rough evening, listeners. And now it's it's a morning the it did not crash on us. We got the yeah. whole thing in one take. Let's not jinx it. Let's not jinx it. Yeah. Let's, yeah, we better let's, sign off quick. Let's end this now. <laughs> All right. Okay, bye.